Welcome to another QuackCast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatans. I'm sorry, I keep getting this wrong. This is alternative and complementary medicine, or as I heard on the skeptic tank, you have to include supplements. So it's supplementary, complementary alternative medicines, or scams. This podcast is dated September 2007, and is going to cover iridology. Brought to you as always by... Pusware LLC, the publisher of the Persiflazer's Annotated Compendium of Infectious Disease Facts, Dogma, and Opinion, your uber-hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious disease at pusware.com, where you'll also find the Persiflazer's podcast, a bi-monthly review of infectious diseases that is CME accredited. As Thomas Jefferson said in a different context, ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. So I'm going to practice evidence-based ridicule, and we will look at various concepts in the field of supplements, complementary, and alternative medicines. The references for each podcast are on the website, as are MP3s if you don't want to play this through an iPod or iTunes. Also, if you like this nonsense, please write me a good review on iTunes. And if you don't like it, Write me a scathing review. I think I should have entitled this Better Living Through Alternative Medicine, and then I would have gotten better correspondence, such as they get at ratbags.com, which would be much more amusing to read and to reply to, rather than all the nice email I have gotten to date. These podcasts are getting both a little harder and a little easier, in that the raison d'etre was to review the medical literature on some quack topic. Thing is, the topics that are left, and there seem to be an endless number of them, no longer have much in the way of medical literature to support or deny their efficacy. Probably because they are so damn stupid it is hardly worth the time and energy to prove them. Like, say, iridology. Is iridology the study of a great lake? Is it the study of a high alpine nest? Or of that spooky feeling in a haunted house? Or even the study of a flower? I wish, because these things at least represent something real. And iridology is a fantasy. Preparing for this podcast, I read a book on the topic of iridology by practicing iridologists. And if one could call this gobbledygook anything, it would be fiction. I wish I had been an English major in college so that I could understand the quasi-postmodern pseudo-logic that abounds in the writings of alternative medicine practitioners. Lots of words that say nothing. It is often the alt-med equivalent of Ford Prefect's analysis of Vogon poetry. There, I got my one hitchhiker's reference out of the way for the podcast. What iridology is, is the study of disease by looking at the changes in the colored part of the eye, or the iris. A little background eyeball anatomy is probably in order, because we all have colored eyes. Of note, the color of the eye is due to genes. What a surprise. They're genetically coded. And there are basically three genes that code for eye color. And this also is a concept that seems beyond most of those who practice alt-med. Genes make proteins that make us. And everything we have and everything we do starts with genes. Am I a reductionist or what? And the more we learn from the human genome product, among others, the more this holds true. 
So when someone starts babbling about energies or key or whatever, ask them what genes code for these processes. They will probably say it's some sort of quantum effect or emergent complexity, and then you know they really don't know what they're talking about, and they're talking out their ass. So anyway, it's your genes and the variations that count for the color of your eye. Now overall, the color is due to three main elements within the iris that contribute to its color. There is the melanin content of the iris pigment epithelium. Epithelium are the surface cells. There's the melanin content within the iris stroma. And then there's the cellular density of the stroma itself, the stroma being the meat of the eye. The stroma connects to the muscles that help dilate the pupil, which is the black middle of the eye in everyone but little orphan Annie. What makes these muscles move? Nerves. You have a little nerve that goes down to the iris that helps dilate the pupil when the room gets dark or make it contract when you get that rush of heroin. Ugh, heroin. Eye color and iris patterns are pretty much permanent by age six months and don't change much unless you have direct trauma to the eye, like say an arrow through your eye or a nail gun. Now there are a lot of interesting diseases that manifest in the eye endocarditis and leptospirosis and syphilis, to name a few of the interesting ones, i.e. the infectious disease ones. But by and large, most diseases leave the iris alone. So iridologists are lucky and they have picked an area of the body with interesting but minor effects from real diseases and is a diagnostic tool not of much use to real doctors. So they can say pretty much what they want because, well, real doctors don't really care because it's not important. Now, I don't know why we have eye color. I went looking for an evolutionary explanation for why we have different eye colors and could not find one. So, anyone care to enlighten me, feel free to send me an email. Given the amount of specialization in medicine, I would presume that there is an ophthalmologic iris evolution expert. There's an expert in everything. But that's basic eyeball anatomy. Onward to the nonsense. The history of iridology. Like all great discoveries, iridology had its start in the keen observations of an acute observer of the biologic condition. Not. It was Ignaz von Pekzeli, P-E-C-Z-E-L-Y, a 19th century Hungarian physician who is credited with modern iridology. Newton had his apple. Steve Jobs had his apple. The Beatles had their apple. Cinderella had her apple. Everyone has an apple. Except for Van Pexley. He had an owl. Not being a member of PETA, he was out one winter's night wrestling with an owl and broke its leg. Feeling guilty and not realizing that an owl tastes better than turkey, he took it home to cure it. Now there's one version that he noticed a streak in the owl's eye that faded as the leg healed. There's another version that later in life he took care of a man with a broken leg who had the exact same streak in his iris and, in a flash of insight, realized that illnesses could manifest in the iris. Sounds like it's an apocryphal story, but he at least is credited with the discovery of iridology and spent his life investigating the diagnostic possibilities of iridology. It's kind of sad, really. I see a lot of people who apparently are throwing their lives away. 20-year-olds who are heroin addicts or other drug addicts who are going to die soon and basically spent their lives stoned. He spent his life in iridology, and that seems equally sad and pathetic how people can waste their lives. So what did he discover, to use discover in its broadest sense? 
How does it work? Not that it does. Well, if you go to Wikipedia, you can find an iris map on the chapter on iridology. In this pseudoscience, each part of the iris is linked to a different part of the body. The iris is small and the body is large, so they have to cram a lot of organs into a little tiny space. Now, this mapping of the body onto an organ is popular in all sorts of quackery. The bottom of the foot, the palms, the ear, the tongue, all have purported mappings of the body, so you can treat any organ by applying acupuncture to these appendages alone. Your palm has a foot, and your foot has a palm, and I have my foot in my mouth. Now, where all these connections to and from each appendage goes to all these organs is a mystery, and one would think that they would crowd out all the other structures. I guess not. But it does explain why when I rub the eyes with the palms of my hand in the morning, I get a, well, wait, this may be a bit of oversharing. But basically, it's often thought that different parts of your body have a homunculus of your total body mapped upon it. Now, iridologists then look for a variety of structural changes in the iris and, depending on where it occurs, decide where the illness or potential illness in an organ would be. Now, these changes come in a variety of shapes in the iridologic literature. There's lacunae and flecks in the daisy iris and asthenic ridges and transversals and honeycombs, and they all have different significance. For example, a lacunae means you have an organ insufficiency. Have a lacuna over the liver part of your iris, your liver is insufficient. Most of these people have lacuna over the frontal lobes of their brain. Aesthetic ridges mean low energy, etc., etc. Now, how did all this information of an illness in an organ get to the iris? By reflexes, of course. These reflexes propagate from the organ in question down the nerves to the brain and then out to the iris along the oculomotor nerve, where these mysterious reflexes imprint changes on the iris and are a manifestation of the illness. Now, this is nonsense, because there ain't no such neuroanatomical relationship. Now, there is a nerve that goes to the iris that causes the muscles there to contract, and that's all it does. Now, when I was a kid last century, I thought that the Broadway in downtown Portland was the same as the Broadway in New York City, and that if I stayed on Broadway, I would end up in the Big Apple. Now, it is true that all these roads are connected, just like it's true that the iris is connected to the liver by way of the vascular or the nervous system. But to say that looking at the iris allows you to know what's going on in the liver is the same as saying that you can look at the skyline of New York City and know what is going on in Portland, Oregon because they're connected by a roadway. This is nonsense. And there are also iris constitutional types, like astrologic signs, that determine illness risk. There is the lymphatic type, which is associated with blue eyes. There is the hematogenous type, which is associated with brown eyes. And there's the biliary type, which is associated with mixed brown or hazel eyes. Each of these have different diseases associated with them. For example, the lymphatic has diseases of the lymphatic system. What a surprise. The hematogenous has issues with the glandular and the blood system, and also the heart and kidneys. And the biliary also has, hmm, guess what, the biliary tract in the liver. So you can just look at a person's eye color, and you can determine what diseases they are at risk for. Nonsense, of course, but this is their little bedtime story. I'm just reporting it. 
Now, the interesting thing is that these constitutional types are based on eye colors, at least in England and the United States. But in Korea, where everyone has brown eyes, these constitutional types are actually based on various hues of brown rather than different eye colors. So that in Korea, for example, the lymphatic type differs from the hematogenous type, not by being the difference between blue and brown, but by being a slightly different shade of brown. Otherwise, Korean iridologists would be stuck with saying that everybody in Korea only has problems with the glandular system in the blood, and they could not have problems with a respiratory tract or the lymphatic disease because they are all of one iris constitutional type. Anybody see a problem here besides me? No consistency. It's like different kinds of astrology. There's Indian astrology, there's Western astrology, and everyone has their different and mutually contradictory forms of nonsense. And these constitutional signs, like astrological signs, are vague enough that you can apply them to virtually anybody. Now, the nice thing of these findings are, within the confines of iridology, they are not falsifiable. So you go to a iridologist and you have an abnormality in your iris, say, over the liver. Now, this means that you have had a problem with your liver, or you currently have a problem with your liver, or, and here's the good part, Von Prexley evidently saw a problem. People had anomalies on their iris, but they had no pathology to account for this. Evidently, he would wander around mumbling into himself, much like Harry Potter, Hic signum ubi ulcus, which is evidently Latin for, here's the marking, where is the problem? Now, the problem was he was dealing with nonsense, but from his point of view, he didn't have an answer and died not knowing why people had anomalies but no pathophysiology. It wasn't until an iridologist named Deck in the 1950s came up with the answer. This iridologist had a colleague who had an anomaly in his eye in the upper abdomen region of the iris and then 11 years later had a stomach perforation. Aha! The iris pathology predicted the problem. It demonstrated that there are latent markings on the iris that predicted potential problems. The iris is omniscient. It knows your past, it knows your present, and it knows your future. But as always, like in Terminator 2, there is no fate but what we make for ourselves. Let's ignore Terminator 3, which disproved this concept. But if the iris shows a future, it is not necessarily a future that needs to come to pass. If, say... You partake of the iridologist's recommendations and take their therapies and come back for frequent examinations. This has the advantage of making the diagnosis in iridology fundamentally not falsifiable within the context of iridology. Because if they look at your eye and they see that there are changes of liver disease and you don't have any problems with your liver, well, you may get liver disease in the future if you're not careful. Pretty clever way of generating income, if I do say so myself. Now, I shouldn't make fun of iridology because it takes a lot to become an iridologist. For example, the New York Center of Iridology will grant a degree in iridology with 12 hours of, quote, intensive training, unquote. Although other programs, you have to take up to 100 hours of training to become an iridologist. Now, by the way... I made a rough calculation that I spent 6,400 hours in medical school, 4,800 hours as a medicine resident, and 3,200 hours as an ID specialist, not including study time. 
more the fool me. While not offered in my local naturopathic or chiropractic schools, a search and evaluation of scam schools of various persuasions suggests that iridology is taught as, quote, a fundamental assessment of functional disorders commonly encountered in naturopathic and herbal medicine clinical practice. Oh, I'm sorry, I mean practice, end quote. Apparently, it's also popular in Germany, where evidently 80% of non-medically qualified health practitioners practice iridology. And for those of you who do not like the rigorous training involved in iridology for a mere $30,000, you can buy the Bexel Irina, which will diagnose a patient's ailments automatically by scanning the image of their iris and analyzing it through a computer. Wow. Now, on to the clinical studies. There are, not unsurprisingly, not many clinical trials that looked at iridology. In 1979, there was an article in JAMA that was published that did the following. They had 95 patients with normal kidney function and 48 with abnormal kidney function. And they had their irises photographed and examined by three iridologists who says, yes, I can tell kidney disease from a photo of an iris. Thank you very much. No, they couldn't. Their ability to diagnose abnormal kidneys was no better than chance. And while one iridologist called 96% of the abnormals correctly, he also said that 78% of the patients who were normal had kidney problems. Of course they had kidney problems. It was a trait they were going to develop in the future. The iris sees all. Now, in the alternative and complementary medicine in 2005, they did a study to see if iridology could detect susceptibility to cancer. What they did was take 110 patients who had either histologically proven cancer, which was 68 of them, or 42 who had no cancer. And all these were examined by a, quote, experienced practitioner of iridology, unquote, who did not know the medical details. He was allowed to suggest up to five different diagnoses for each subject. And then they went back and saw if he got it right. He didn't. He got the correct diagnosis in three cases. Woohoo! As they concluded, iridology is of no value in diagnosing the cancers investigated in this study. They did a similar study in 1988 where they did it for gallbladder disease. They had 39 patients with gallbladder disease and 39 who did not. And five iridologists, two of whom were MDs, as you can see, having an MD is no inoculation against nonsense, and who were considered leaders in the field, examined the eyes. And again, they could not tell who had gallbladder disease and who did not on the basis of iridologic exam. To quote from the authors, quote, there is only one explanation for the low validity of the reviewers. Iridology is not a valid test for diagnosing gallbladder disease or anything else, if you ask me. Other studies have been carried out on iridology, and most of them are not particularly informative as the reviewers weren't particularly skilled and blinding was not done. And here's the key point. Studies done by unskilled reviewers who did not believe in iridology tended to have negative results. Believers in iridology sometimes reached a high percentage of correct diagnosis, especially when they had known about the patients beforehand. So they can see what's in the eye if they already know what the patients had. He also sent a final copy to all the iridologists, and he says, and again I quote, I sent this report to the iridologist who participated in the study. They were disappointed with the results and commented that A, 
Evaluating the image of the iris without access to other medical information is difficult. Duh. If you don't know what they already have, you can't find it in the eye. Assessments are more easily made when slides of both irises of the patient. Well, they agreed ahead of time that they could do it on one. Possibly other diseases, apart from the gallbladder disease, are manifested more clearly in the iris. We've shown that's not true. And D, the conclusion, which was that iridology is crap, was too final. I think it was justified. In reading a book about iridology, one gets the impression that they do a form of cold reading. They ask the patient all sorts of questions. They find out what diseases the patients have or have a predilection towards on the basis of other diseases, such as diabetics having a predilection for heart disease, and then they find these in the patient's eyes. If they don't know in advance what diseases the patients have, they can't tell you diddly. And that's it for studies published in the English literature. Evidently, there are studies in other languages that reveal, again, that iridologists can't do diddly, but I can't read them, and so I can't tell you. There was a structured review published in the English literature, and they read all the non-English literature and said the same thing. It doesn't work. I should mention here three curious studies that are out of Korea, which is where I learned of different iris constitution amongst Koreans. What they did here is they had a group of 87 hypertensives and 79 controls who were classified by a single iridologist according to their iris constitution, and then they did a variety of high-tech analyses of their resulting proteins and came up some, with some curious results. Now, they used the same study group and generated three separate papers. In one paper, for example, they found that 75% of hypertensive patients who had the neurogenic or cardiorenal connective tissue weakness type of their iris had a higher chance of a DD genotype for the angiotensin-converting enzyme gene polymorphism, i.e. they were looking at gene differences and whether or not it manifested with changes in the iris. In yet another paper, they found the frequency of the cardiorenal connective tissue weakness constitution of the iris was higher in hypertensives who had a genotype for TNF-alpha G allele. And yet a third study with the same group of patients, they found a neurogenic iris constitution had an increased risk in hypertensives who had the apoprotein 2 or 4 genetic allele. What the hell am I talking about? What these studies purport to show is an association between various polymorphisms, i.e. variations in genes that make proteins and make us all different, and the presence of hypertension, and the presence of various iris constitutions. It's curious that they use the same three patient populations for all three genetic markers. Now remember, of course, that association is not causation. But this study is primarily suspect in that it is not mentioned in the study whether or not the person doing the iris analysis was blinded. I sent an email, but have yet to receive a reply from the authors as to whether or not the iridologist was blinded as to who had hypertension and who did not. The wording of the paper suggests that he knew in advance who was who or whom was whom. And if you look at hypertensives in the literature, you will find many articles on various polymorphisms and their proteins. Hypertensives are different than you and I, assuming you don't have hypertensives. And some of these differences do include genetic polymorphisms. I think this is more a situation of data mining than actual true, valid clinical results.
And that ends the boring part of today's talk, the clinical studies on iridology. So what can we say in summary? Well, iridology makes no anatomic sense, it makes no physiologic sense, and it doesn't work. And practitioners of this, quote, art, unquote, are fooling their patients and probably themselves. And I don't even think it makes good fiction. On a personal note, as a physician who practices basically all the time in the hospital, death of people I know is not an uncommon phenomenon. And at some level, you get kind of used to people dying. People you know well sometimes, and it's always a sad experience. I don't like it when people die. Now, the podcast community and the skeptic community is a small one, and I was quite saddened to learn that Perry DeAngelis from the Skeptic's Guide of the Universe died last month at a very young age. I never talked with Mr. DeAngelis and never really knew him, but I'm surprisingly impressed with the power of listening to podcasts to create, at least in my mind, the illusion that I have lost a friend. I will miss his sarcastic voice on that podcast, and I think the skeptical world is definitely lessened by his death. My condolences to his friends and family. And to the half dozen people out there who listen to this, hello, stay healthy. The connections that we get through these podcasts are probably far stronger than I had ever anticipated. So as always, we come to the end. This is brought to you as a side project at Pusswear.com, where you will find the Persiflasers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, where you can even get free type 1 CME if you're a doctor. It's copyright 2007 to Creative Commons. The references are on the show notes and can be found at quackcast.com, as well as all the old podcasts. Send your hate mail and spam and questions about quackery to know it all at quackcast.com. I will answer my email eventually. I find somehow that answering email to be one of the most onerous tasks ahead of me. And every day I put it off to another day. But if you sent me an email someday, I will send you an email back. But I won't promise when. Because if I have a choice between answering email or doing something else, I think I'm always going to choose doing something else. i got to go to San Diego next month and maybe I'll do it while I'm sitting in the airport. But I will answer your email. I do read them, and I thank you. And again, if you like this stuff, please write me a good review on iTunes. And as always, the music is by my son when he was 12, improvising on the guitar. And otherwise, that's it. So, thank you all, and goodbye.